Tonight's talk is about surrender and uh, the maturity of our wisdom and compassion that comes from that surrender. I went for a short walk with Steve today, and as we were walking up the road, a beautiful, big doe came out in front of us. And we were just looking in each other's eyes for a while. She was so still, and I felt, you know, in some ways, her heart seemed so open and so vulnerable. And I think of us all, um, that our hearts are all really like that, that when we're born into this world, whether we're animal or human, there's a way in which our heart is very open and very tender, but it's not always wise. The heart of a child is open, but not necessarily wise enough to understand in this world this vast amount of sorrow and pain. What we often call the child's heart is a kind of innocent trust or an innocent faith, because it's innocent because it's not based on the hard knocks of reality, of experience of this world that we're born into. When we're doing the mindfulness practice, one of the purposes of it is to become that open, to become as open and tender as we were when we were children. But we're also developing the mindfulness and the equanimity, which is a protection. It helps us to have a strength that can face that anything can happen. One of the things that Upanditi used to say about this practice is that we're developing a mind that is ready for everything, or ready for anything. Because the truth is that anything really can happen. And that's why it's so hard to be open, because you know it feels good when things are going well, uh, and it's easy to be open, but you can feel how the contraction will happen when we're open, when it becomes difficult and we can't see clearly. Mature faith or mature trust is born out of an understanding that comes from observing and participating in our own experience. It's from being fully in the present moment over and over and coming to understand life as it is. So you can see the practice in one way as developing this uh, maturing of freedom that comes from the mindfulness. This is a quotation from the Zen master Dogen, and I think of it as an example of mature faith. When one learns well, being born and dying are both giving. All productive labor is fundamentally giving. Entrusting, entrusting flowers to the wind, birds to the season, also must be meritorious acts of giving. It is not only a matter of exerting physical effort. One should not miss the right opportunity. 
I like the word entrusting in this. It's like there's a feeling of this ability to flow with life as it is, letting the myriad things appear and disappear. The process of maturing in this practice is understanding that all of our practice, all of our action can come from this place of entrusting, which is a place of giving. Dogen's father died when he was two, and his mother died when he was seven. And he wrote that when he saw the smoke coming from his mother's funeral pier, that, that the transience of life deeply impressed him. So he linked the awareness of impermanence with the desire for realization with a desire for freedom. For myself, I know that my mother's death when I was young, just, I felt different in a way. I felt that I was searching for understanding very young because that um, feeling her cold body, just kind of, it was like a shock that I couldn't forget. I couldn't turned back to how I had been before that. It's interesting to just see how different people in a family will respond to something like that, because I was talking with my older sister, who's five years older than me, and it didn't, my mother's death didn't affect her that way at all. And, and so she's feeling like she's just coming to be willing to open to the fact of impermanence or death now in her life. And I could never understand that. How could we be that different? How could that experience affect us so differently? And sometimes I thought, you know, she had a baby when she was 15. And at that point, um, I think maybe she was just focused, so focused on birth. Uh, But it, it was just such a different karma that we had in terms of that search. She's just starting to search in that way now. And you can see that in, in life, how we're all, you know, not everybody out there is doing lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> You'll find that out soon enough. <laughs> when we get very quiet on a retreat, like you all are, you start to see that We've talked about how suffering isn't the presence of pain or the presence of pleasure in our life, but it's that reacting to the passing of the pleasure with attachment or the reacting to the arising of the unpleasant with aversion or fear. I think we've, we've covered that a lot. Um, as we deepen in retreat, and we start to surrender to how life is, we, as we start to let go of control, usually we'll become more aware of how we suffer. You know, we won't become less aware of aversion and attachment. We'll become more aware of it. We'll become more aware of how much we're contracting. As we open to that presence of the, the reaction, we'll be able to develop more and more understanding of why we suffer. 
a lot of the practice is developing this understanding of how and why we suffer. It's the only way out. So we start to learn that the presence of pain and pleasure isn't the problem for us as human beings, but that we're not protected by mindfulness. And that's what you start to see in a retreat, is that it's, it's really just a matter of remembering to pay attention, remembering to pay attention, and remembering over and over. This mindfulness helps us to develop the mature faith it mature faith remembering includes the ability to open to the pain in this world, to see it clearly, and to understand it. Innocent openness is, is openness to pleasure, not to the pain. Someone on an interview the other day asked me to describe some breakthroughs that I've had in my practice, um, which I just sort of thought were understood. <laughs> but um, I tend to go through the doorway of dukkha a lot, so I talk about it a lot. One of the ways in which I see any of us having a breakthrough is, is when we understand life more deeply. That's, that's what a breakthrough is in the mindfulness practice. And the understanding feels wonderful. The insight feels good because there's a maturing of how we see life. The first time that I sat for a long time was I did a month of practice in Wales. I tend to be allergic to everything. And I'm allergic to mold and mildew and wet, wet wool and wool. <laughs> um, when I went to this place, I was allergic to the room I was sleeping in, and I was allergic to the meditation hall. It was also extremely rainy and cold. I, I had never been to England or Wales, and I was expecting a June, something like this. And it was <laughs> very, very different than my expectations. I didn't bring enough warm clothes. I was really miserable for two weeks or so. And I kept looking forward to uh, a sunny day. You know, that's what was hold, keeping me going. I just knew so, at some point <laughs> the sun had to come out. It was by the odds, you know, it just, in my mind, it had to get better. So it, it, about maybe two and a half weeks in the retreat, the sun came out. And I was so excited, you know, I was just so happy, and I grabbed my zafu, and I walked up to this field that I had planned, you know, I'd planned this for two and a half weeks to go to, to have some pleasure. So, I, <laughs> and real happiness. <laughs> so I got up there, and it was just, I sat down, and I was just totally blissed out. The sun was out, and I wasn't sneezing, and my nose wasn't dripping. I was so happy. And, you know, it was 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and then I started sweating. Um, and then these flies started coming and landing on my hands and face, wherever there was sweat. And it became more and more unpleasant. Uh, and I had, it was sort of the circumstance of it that I was, I had so much aversion <laughs> to this unpleasantness. It was like, it just was so extreme. And something, I just hit bottom. 
you know, it was just like I just totally hit bottom, and there was a surrender. And I, I really understood that happiness wasn't about this pleasure that I had been looking forward to so much, but it was about a surrender to how life is. And it, it's, it's really about this unconditional acceptance. The metta is unconditional love. Well, the Vipassana, you know, uh, wisdom is, is this equanimity of unconditional acceptance of how life is. So for me, I saw so deeply that there absolutely isn't any peace in this world without the... It's just, it's not possible in this world. For me, that was the first time that I'd ever stopped really stopped. You know, I'd stopped running away from the pain. I stopped trying to find a place that was perfect for me to sit. I just deeply shifted to a place of surrender. One of the things that tends to be difficult to realize when we're doing a retreat is that it's about freedom. Freedom is this unconditional acceptance. And the freedom requires seeing clearly. It requires this mindfulness. For me, that tasting of the peace, it was sweeter than anything I'd ever tasted in my life. And I knew that's what I wanted. It was like a really deep connection with it. That's what my life was about. That's what understanding led to, was the sweetness of peace. That experience let, let me have a growing, maturing faith in the mindfulness. So if we ask the question, well, what do we have faith in? You know, it's really the faith in that, in that seeing clearly, because it leads to this peace and freedom. This is a quotation from a book called The Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Rolihla, Rolihla, Rolihla. I wanted to say his African name, Nelson Mandela. Most of you know of him. He spent 27 years in prison, just got out in 1990, and has spent his life dedicated to fighting oppression. This is from the end of his autobiography. When I walked out of prison, that was my mission, to liberate the oppressed and oppressor both. Some say that has now been achieved, but I know that is not the case. The truth is that we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed, we have not taken the final step of our journey, but the first step on a longer and even more difficult road. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. The true test of our devotion to freedom is just beginning. I have walked that long road to freedom I have tried not to falter. I have made missteps along the way. 
But I have discovered the secret that after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb. I have taken a moment to rest, to steal a view of the glorious vista that surrounds me, to look back on the distance I have come. But I can rest only for a moment, for with freedom comes responsibilities, and I dare not linger, for my long walk is not ended. I think we tend to think that we should only have one hill to climb. (laughs) I have discovered the secret that after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb. On the top of the hill that we climb, we we get this incredible perspective. And we all know those times in our life that we have that experience. But then, at some point, we go to the bottom again, and we have to start again if we're really going to be free. When we hit bottom, we often don't have that perspective, you know, that great. Another hill to climb. Uh, But hitting bottom is really it. You know, that's every time I've had a breakthrough in my practice, it's after I've hit bottom in some way. It's, It's just that's what usually enables me to surrender. Hitting bottom usually means a big surrender. Often we find that we've been running away from the pain, we've been running away from the aversion, or we've been holding on to something really pleasurable. I came to understand that there was a cycle of, of having an unpleasant experience to the aversion that I didn't understand happened when I wasn't aware of the unpleasantness and a fear, a great fear of that situation. And then doubt. I would have doubt in myself to really be able to open to that experience, and I'd be more afraid of that experience. Whenever I felt myself in that kind of vicious cycle and felt myself in so much suffering, it's like being in a big fire, you know? It's like the suffering is is just like being in flames. The, the surrender, for me, has usually come around accepting that the aversion is happening. But it can equally be, you know, when we're really wanting, accepting that the wanting is happening. Acceptance gives us a chance. It gives us a chance to really explore that experience and to learn how to work with it skillfully. So the acceptance, the unconditional acceptance, helps us to move from the immaturity of the, of the mind to a real maturity of handling life as it is. There have been many times in my practice where I've had to get to a place of real determination to, to face things. You know, it's, it's like that first time in Wales, I could see that sense in myself that I'm going to sit here <laughs> until I understand this. Um, the determination can take many forms for us, 
but it comes out of a, a sense of suffering. You know, it's like Dogen saying that the, the realization comes out of the awareness of the impermanence. The, the, the realization comes out of the awareness of our suffering. When we open to life as it is, it takes time to develop the equanimity along with that. And I've seen in my practice that I might have a big surrender and and an opening, but then it'll take time. It just takes time for the equanimity to, to balance with that opening. And for some people like myself, I felt like I'd go through places of opening fairly quickly but then it would take sometimes years for the equanimity to, to um, mature to that place of opening. For some people, they might open more slowly, but the equanimity is developing as that opening is happening more slowly. So be careful of comparing, because it all comes out in the wash. You know, because equanimity takes time. It's just like uh, the fruit ripening on a tree. If you see the peach fruit that's ripening on the back on the peach tree, uh, if you watch any fruit developing, you can see that it, it just takes time. And that's how equanimity is. It's just like the ripening of fruit. When the, when the equanimity is there and we see clearly, we don't have a problem with aversion and attachment. It's no longer a problem for us. We don't have to do anything with it other than experience it and let it go. So we can either stay mired in our suffering or we can use it as a causal link to liberate ourselves. In the Vipassana world, it's a long journey. And in facing life as it is, by experiencing how life is over and over, we tend to face peace, happiness, but we face doubt, we face anger, we face betrayal, we face loss. You know, there's a whole range of happiness, exhilaration. We just learn to experience life as it is. I'd like to share a story from the Plains Native American people. It's a sacred story. Time, time is very different in this story, and it, it's important to remember that the reason for that is that it's a long journey, just like our journey. Sacred stories take time to understand, and one can hear them a long time. Um, over time and get different things out of it. This story is a story that I like a lot. It's a story of a young woman. If, if you're male, you can just think of this man as a young man, if you're female, young woman. And in the story, she sets out on a long journey. It's her search for understanding, that great quest in the understanding of who am I? What is life? This is part of the story. 
And try to remember to be the journey, be the struggle, be the fear, be the betrayal. Be confused, be tricked. It'll feel familiar. (laughs) One day, a young woman approached her grandmother and sat with her. She said, Grandmother, I hear that somewhere there exists a singing stone, and that when it is found, it will hold great medicine for its finder. Is this true? And the grandmother looked her deeply in the eye, and she said, it's true, but it will be a difficult and long journey. Go to the north, and you will find it. At the next sunrise, the young woman began her journey to the north. It was her first day. She hadn't gone far before she saw smoke in the distance, and she thought, it's a fire. I'll be burned. And she was very afraid. But she had that determination to go on. She really wanted to find the singing stone. So she kept walking, and by the end of the day, she discovered that this smoke that she was so afraid she was going to die in and burn in was actually the rainbow mist of the sacred mountains. That night, she rested. The second day, all that day, she walked among these beautiful great pines in a forest until she came to this circle of pines that had an um, opening, and the sunlight was pouring into that opening. This, this opening uh, had a path that led to the east, and the young woman walked with the sun among the great pines all that day to cross that place, and that night she slept. Just keep in mind all the time she rests and she sleeps. I like that part of the story. (laughs) Being the queen of sloth and torpor. (laughs) Her third day, the woman came upon a beautiful lake, and everything of the world was mirrored in the lake. All the beings of the prairie, the sky, the trees, the lodges of the peoples, the flowers, the mountains, the day, the night. This was the medicine lake, and she drank the sweet water from the lake and refreshed herself, and then she rested. The fourth day, the young woman saw her grandmother sitting on a rock, waiting for her. Welcome, granddaughter, her grandmother said. The old woman's hair was white, and her braids were so long that they touched the ground. Her grandmother offered her really good-tasting food, kind of like the food we get here for lunch. And after the meal, the grandmother offered her a gift. She offered her her braids. She cut her braids off and gave them to her granddaughter. But the daughter, she couldn't keep them on her head. They just wouldn't stay. So her grandmother told her to tie them to her waist. So that's what she did. So she said to her grandmother, I've come for the singing stone. And her grandmother said, the singing stone isn't to the north. Try looking to the the south. So the young woman returned to the medicine lake and rested. And that was the end of her first day. 
kind of like a day of meditation, huh? (laughs) The next morning, she began her journey south, and she met a mother fox and her kit foxes. And this day also lasted four days. And she played with the foxes and walked with them. And the foxes asked her where she was going. And she said, I'm going to find the singing stone. Can you help me? And the kid foxes answered, yes, follow the river, and you'll find the singing stone. So that night, the young woman slept. And the second day, she met a turtle. And the turtle walked with her all day and sang her four songs. That night, she rested. Her third day, she walked along the river, and it suddenly stopped and she couldn't go any further. So she didn't know what to do until finally a coyote came and said, I'll help you, just follow me. So she followed the coyote, and the coyote had her walk all in zigzags and crisscrosses. didn't seem like they were going in any path, all over the prairie, all different directions. And she finally said to the coyote, you've tricked me. He said, no, I haven't tricked you. The river is right over there. So the young woman looked and saw that it was, and that night she slept. The fourth day, she set out again, and she soon became really confused and discouraged. Nowhere can I see the singing stone. All I can see are the mountains, the prairie, the sky, the sun, the trees, flowers, all the beings of this place, but no singing stone. And she became very angry. A beautiful dragonfly came flying by, and the dragonfly was so beautiful, it was so pleasant and seductive, that she stepped out on some rocks to look more closely at this dragonfly. And she leaned out further and further, and she fell into the river. And she thought she would drown. She didn't know how to swim. And she was furious at the dragonfly. She said, you've tricked me. And the dragonfly said, no, I haven't tricked you. You've only fallen into the river. (laughs) The singing stone isn't to the south. It's to the west. So she rested, and that was the end of her second day. So she began her journey west, and the third day, it's a long story, she met puppies, and there was sweet grass, and a great elk, and on the fourth day, she met a mouse. And the mouse said to her, after this long four days of journey, looking for the singing stone, the singing stone isn't to the west, it's to the east. So it was the end of her third day, and she rested and she started her journey east. The first day on her journey east, she met a beautiful old woman at a beautiful lodge. They ate together, and she asked her grandmother there, well, what is this lodge? And her grandmother said, well, this is the lodge of gambling. It's about taking risks. So she slept with this old woman in the lodge, And the second day, she came to another beautiful lodge, and her grandfather was there, and a little boy, and she ate with both of them. And this was the Lodge of Seven Arrows. She slept with them that night. 
The third day, she came to a very wide river. She looked up and down the banks all over for a place to cross, but she couldn't find one. So she just decided to sit still and wait. And she waited a long time. She just sat there a long time. And she listened so closely she could hear her own heartbeat. And she finally heard her own heart say, there's always a place for children to cross the river. So she crossed. And as she did, the water never came above her knees. And that night she rested. On the fourth day, the young woman sat again. She sat very quietly and for a long time on a hill. Suddenly she saw a strange camp in the distance. She walked toward it, and there were many, many teepees or lodges with strange signs and paintings on them, none from her her known world, her known tribe. So she couldn't recognize at all where she was. She was completely lost, totally afraid. But she was determined to go on. So she stepped in the middle of this circle. It was a huge circle of lodges. And then she looked around. She just paused, and she looked around and was totally surprised because she saw her grandmother and her sisters and her mothers and her brothers and her fathers, her grandmothers, her grandfathers, her uncles, aunts, and the grandmother who had told her about the singing stone. So all of her relatives, all of the people, came out to greet her. Because in this tradition, every, every being is your relative. All the animals, all the people came to see her and greet her. And they said to her, welcome. Welcome to our fire singing stone. sacred story. Everyone sees who she is. They recognize her. It's like her journey, the journey itself brings the transformation. It's like the process of doing this work itself uh, brings about the Buddha nature, the wisdom, the compassion. It's not like you're going to be waiting for it to happen 10 years from now or two seconds from now, but it's in actually doing it that it happens. We tend to think that we're wasting time if we have a hard sitting, or we're wasting time if we're fighting fear. But that's, that's it. That's where we're doing <coughs> this process of developing this incredible wisdom. So we open to all experience. We open to rest to sleep, to joy, to fear, to doubt, to feeling tricked, to feeling confused, to feeling totally lost and not recognizing where we are at all. We have the anger and the discouragement, the peace, the contentment. It's all part of the journey of life. Everything is part of our journey of life.
sometimes on our journey of life, especially over years of the ups and downs, sometimes we have to completely change direction. And whenever we have to completely change direction, we'll find that we do feel lost and confused and betrayed or exhilarated. But it's all about finding our way home. It's all about that sense of becoming singing stone because we are singing stone. The great Zen master Dogen at the age of 12 entered Zen practice by this question that occurred to himself at 12. Why? Why, if all beings by nature are Buddhas, was it necessary for the ancient masters to sweat blood and realize it? Why? You know, why do you have to sit here suffering all day? You know, why if the wisdom is already within us, why is the journey home so difficult? The wisdom being already within us, that's when the journey is easy and effortless. The fact that we have to hit bottom (laughs) makes the journey hard. The fact that we have to sweat blood. You know, there's both. They both happen. The effortless, easy times and the hitting bottom times. But why is it so hard? It's, It's really to remember that the first part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering. It's remembering to come back. The translation for mindfulness is often recollecting. It's, it's just, <laughs> we forget. You know, you know those times when you feel like you really understand and you feel like you got it, and that how could you ever not be mindful again? You know, <laughs> it's so clear, you know, and it seems so simple and so effortless, and, and it, it's like we've got it, you know, no problem. Might as well go home. You know, it's so effortless and easy and clear. And within seconds, you know, you'll feel like you don't understand what you're doing, completely like, what's the point? You know, I might as well go home because I'm not getting anywhere. You know, this is ridiculous. It's just a bunch of zombies walking around, you know. Um, It's just totally weird. It's just we go from those two extremes of, of, of it feeling exactly like the Buddha to feeling like um, Bozo. <laughs> over and over and over in that story, day after day, um, you see that there's so much repetition in those in the native stories, just so much repetition. And you you know wonder why. But look what we're doing. There's so much repetition over and over. We're coming back to the present moment. We're coming back. We're coming back. We're remembering. We're remembering. That's all it is. We're remembering. And we're really slow. The other day, I I saw a turtle on the road, and I stopped the car, and I sort of helped it get on. I knew which direction it was going. when I got close to the turtle and I went to pick it up, you know, its head went in and its, <laughs> its arms and its legs went in, and it's so, that's us. 
you know, that's, <laughs> we think we've evolved, you know, over all these you know, millennia into something so much superior. Uh, but when push comes to shove, we don't look like our head goes in and our tail and our arms and legs, but that's what we do. You know, it's that insecurity and we pull in uh, and we forget. We forget to be mindful. It's important to remember that no matter what happens, it's never too late to start again. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the journey. It's like you wonder, well, why is a schedule like this where you sit and walk and sit and walk? And why not only sit when it's effortless? And why not only walk when it's easy? Um, but that's not the journey. The journey is the whole thing. It includes all of it, not just some of it. When we hit bottom, that's usually when we have the humility to start again. Each step that is done with mindfulness, each breath that's done with mindfulness, it's like we're in the Holy Land. And the Holy Land is when we feel free. When we feel free, we feel this maturity of faith. Every moment of life is part of the journey. Every moment of the retreat is part of your journey. It's every difficult moment, every liberated moment, and that over time, we'll slowly begin to accept that each moment is our teacher. Each moment of life is the guru. Uh, and as understanding deepens, the openness to life deepens. There's this incredible, joyful surrender at times to how life is. The more detached we grow with the wisdom that we develop, it makes it possible for us to connect more deeply with life. And those two can seem very much like a paradox. If we're only detaching, something is wrong over time, because the detachment is that ability to see clearly and to understand anything can happen. But if it's, if it's uh, making us step further and further off the planet, it's not working. You know, it's meant to help us connect, and then out of that connection, there'll be a certain point where we detach. And sometimes that's just going over and over in moments. You'll connect, you'll observe, you'll connect, observe, connect, observe. Um, other times it'll feel like you'll, it'll happen over a longer period of time. This balance just keeps deepening of the feeling interconnected and wise, detached. The connection is that heart open, you know, that open vulnerability, ability to be so fully present, so tenderly, exquisitely present. The wisdom is that ability to see clearly, to not be so vulnerable that we can't withstand how life is. 
I took a Hawaiian class, the language. I'm not good at languages, but I wanted to be able to pronounce at least the street signs in Honolulu. Um, all the street signs in Hawaii are supposed to be in Hawaiian. And they're, you know, like the highway that we live near is called the Kalaniani Ole Highway. You kind of have to know what you're doing or you can't say these things very well. And it's embarrassing if you live there. Uh, so I just, my motivation wasn't to become fluent in Hawaiian by any means, but um, just to start learning how to say all the ah, 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 The teacher was young, like about 20 years old, uh, and it was fun to be taking a class from someone young like that. Uh, and he was very strict. And I didn't really want to, um, I didn't feel like I had this desire, you know, enough desire to become fluent in it. So I wasn't taking it as seriously as he, I think, thought I should be. So I'd kind of come going, going to class without doing any work ahead of time. And as the time went on, he was expecting us to have, you know, be able to do conversations in class. It was, it was humiliating. Uh, and most of the people in the class were uh, taking hula and had been around Hawaiian a lot or were really old people that had grown up with Hawaiian, but it, it, was, it was like it was outlawed, so they had lost it, the uh, ability to speak it as kids and were wanting to refresh themselves. So I was the dumbest kid in the class and one day he was having us make sentences, and he gave us time to practice it by ourselves and to write it out so we wouldn't be too embarrassed when it came to speaking it in front of the whole class. So, and we could make up our own sentence, so I made up the sentence, um, I wish I understood how to speak Hawaiian better. That was my, that's what I was trying to say. No, I want to, I really want to speak Hawaiian better. And I was struggling with it. I was sweating. I couldn't do it. So I went up to his desk. <laughs> and I showed it to him. And he looked so puzzled. I mean, he just... <laughs> he, he just... He looked like I'd presented him the biggest koan that life had ever presented him. And he just... He was just kind of... You know, and finally he said, we don't think like this in Hawaiian. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, why? <laughs> What's wrong with my sentence? And he said, well, you don't want to understand how to speak Hawaiian. You just do it. You practice it. You just keep doing it until you do it. And, and then he looked at me and he said, Michelle, why don't you try studying? <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> oh, this requires some effort, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I thought I could just roll into class, you know, and just hang out a little bit and get it, uh, but it required a little practice. <laughs> this is much harder, you know. I mean, if you're trying to learn a language, if you're trying to play music, it's that's e that's much easier than this. In a freedom. 
freedom isn't a joke, you know. This this is this is you know this is the major leagues. You know, we're <laughs> we're trying to really face how this life is. It's it's um it's amazing just that you're here. You know, the preciousness of it, the wonder of it, the wonder that you've been here this long. You know, nobody here has left yet. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> There's a mango tree that Stephen and I and our stepdaughter, my stepdaughter Chandra, planted when she was about maybe five. Uh, it was the first year I moved to Honolulu, uh, and I really like mangoes. If you've had mangoes, I think you'll understand why. They're so, they're like the sweetest fruit in the world. Uh, So it took about 10 years for the tree to start growing well. Um, I just, every year I'd look out at it and it just seemed like nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. Uh, And then one year it just started to spurt, you know, kind of like a teenager spurts, you know, and it just started growing and growing. And, you know, I just kept thinking any year now there's going to be mangoes uh, and no fruit. I mean, no flowers, no flowers, five years, no flowers, but it kept growing bigger. And then last year it had these little baby mangoes on it, lots of them, and, you know, just, oh, I was so excited. (laughs) And they never developed. You know, they <laughs> they were just these little green things, and and every time there was a wind or storm, they blew off, and slowly they were gone. Um, and this year, the same thing happened. There's these little green things, but then, and some of them blew off, and then there's about there were 13 a week before I left. There were 11 when I left, and the person who's staying at our house said they're still there. Uh, and they're growing, and we might get mangoes this year, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and it's just watching this process with these ma- mangoes, I think of the practice as it's like there has to be a strong enough tree for the wisdom to really be held. You know, a lot of what you go through, all of the bad things, all of the hard stuff, uh, and then all of the easy, good stuff. All of that is strengthening the tree. It's strengthening you to be able to have the maturity to hold the fruit. It takes strength to hold the fruit. It takes strength to have the equanimity to be where life is. It takes strength to be open to life is. Um, So it's just to try to have that patience and the long-range view. All of it, every moment of being here, every moment of your life that you're paying attention is going into the strength of the tree to support the wisdom. I wrote a little poem during my self-retreat this year at the end, um, and it's about this heart, this heart that's very open and vulnerable but uh, and, and boundless. And I struggled with having the poem be like more of using the word the heart versus my heart or her heart or how, however. Um, and I felt that 
maybe the poem is a more feminine expression of freedom because instead of it having the, um, there's eyes in it. But the eye is, is meant to be the heart, our heart. The heart, in truth, is boundless. You know, there really is no separation. You know, so when you really feel the heart of a chipmunk, you can feel that that's your heart. You can feel when you're really open that there really is no difference. Or if you feel your neighbor going through something in the hall, you know that that's you. It's, there's really no separation. It's called endangered species. My heart is the flower of the universe. My petals are so soft, I register everything, moment by moment. My center is so deep and warm, I can hold everything. My delicate blossoms are so wide, I accept everything. My nectar is so spacious, I taste intensely tender, a gentle breeze in the wind of what's happening. My heart is the flower of the universe. My colors are so smooth and subtle. There is nowhere in this world you can find me. But please try to trace the trail of my scent. There is no end to the depth inside me. My fragrance is so sweet and free. The deeper you journey inside me, you smell whoever you are. My heart is the flower of the universe. You can hold me, but I move so swiftly, you can't hold on to me. I sail so smoothly through time, yet I am timeless and subtle. My voice is so joyous and precious. My humor is so light, pollen. I am truly beautiful. I found her today, my heart. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.